You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. My guest today is Bradley Sherman, who is a demographic futurist and opinion maker on all things dealing with the business of longevity, including his work on the groundbreaking AARP Aging Readiness and Competitiveness Report. Uh, He's got a new book. It's called The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic Destiny. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting to yes and. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Bradley Sherman, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So there was a moment on Sunday when my wife asked me what I was reading. And uh, here's what I'll tell you about me and what was going on. I'm 55 years old, uh, and it was the day before I was going in for hernia surgery. Okay. Um, And I explained to her what I'm reading. And she goes, is this the best idea of a book to read before you're going in to have this treatment and you've been feeling your age and I'm putting up my quote marks. Um, so I, I, I ask you, do you, do you think it was a wise read for me? Uh, I would hope so. There's, there's quite a bit of hopefulness in the read. Sure. Um, there's also some, some honest talk about <laughs> yeah. the fact that, you know, as we get older, as we live longer, rather, I don't like talking about getting old. I like talking about living you know, the likelihood of us having some type of um, failure uh, or deficiency in our health um, is more likely. And in many cases, that's a success story, you know, Mm -hmm. that we get to have these things happen to us. They're not pleasant, um, but they're part of a life well-lived. And that's a badge of honor in my, in my book. Yeah. This is uh, wildly unconnected. The last few tapings, do all connect in that they're all reframes. It's mm-hmm. all sort of saying we've got terrible metaphors. Uh, we, we've told ourselves this, this story that's wrong, and it's keeping us from a truth that, that while maybe difficult, um, if we are being honest with ourselves, we, we can make improvements. And, and you note in the book that for most of human history, the average age of the population didn't change that much. Uh, but then it did. Uh, mm-hmm. So can we go back and sort of say, like, what happened? What, what was the <laughs> uh, We decided to tackle infant and youth mortality as mm. a social and economic ill. 
And we did so with such voracious force that it has completely realtered the way humanity lives on this planet. So I often talk about my family because I think we all have our touch points and, and family is an easy one for us to get to. My grandfather, when he was born in 1914, had a one out of four chance of living to one, a one out of three chance of living to five, and a one out of two chance of living to be an adult. Mm. And that was an average. Today, virtually every child that's born has a pretty good chance of making it into adulthood. What happened, though, is that our birth rates hadn't quite adjusted at that point yet. Yeah. So our global population around then was you know, just about 2 billion people, just shy of 2 billion people. Well, today we're just shy of 8 billion people. Hmm. So our population over the course of the last 100 years has just exploded. Mm-hmm. And it's in large part because we've tackled infant and youth mortality as a central tenant of what we believe is the right and just thing to do. And we haven't just done it here in the US, we've done it around the world. We've done it through agencies within the UN system, private charities. Our goal has been consistent um, to, to make kids' lives survivable. Um, and that's through everything from, you know, food safety to making sure kids get an education. We take them out of the fields and the factories and the mines. The fact that we invested so much time and energy and money into vaccine production, preventative health, national health care systems. These are all things that we really put money and time into. And the payoff, it's nothing sort of revolutionary. Hmm. Um, We've completely remade humanity. And, you know, people say, what's humanity's greatest gift? It's the fact that we gave people a chance to make it into adulthood and then make it into to later life. What's certainly happening now is that because we've had so much success with infants and youth is that there's a whole new crop of people, um, investors and scientists that are really fixated on solving for aging now. So we've treated aging as a process before. Um, they're treating aging like a disease. So these hiccups that we have as we get older, these things that we need to fix your surgery, they hope that they can fix that. So you can actually live longer and compress your morbidity or shorten the number of years that you're actually sick. It's, you know, it's amazing just having gone through this, the surgery. So it was outpatient surgery. It was done with robotics. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, you know, this was on Monday and I'm walking around and I'm like, it's, it's, and I didn't have to spend that long in the hospital. So I, I all count that as a, a, an amazing feat. Um, it's interesting following up on some of the comments you made, uh, there was a, um, philosopher and a, a vicar, um, Sam Wells, who we had on the podcast in the very first season, um, who talked about the essential human problem used to be mortality. Um, and that is not really the problem now. And, and for him, it's, it's loneliness and it's connection. And when we talk about the super age, and I'd love to get your definition of that. I think one of the key components that, that is a thread through this book is the need for human beings through all the life, but especially as they, they grow older to maintain and be a part of a human conversation and connection. And that, that is, that is just, you know, and, and right now we're having a meaning crisis in this country. It's not, sure. you know, everyone talks about the great resignation. It's, it's a meaning crisis, I think. Well, the great resignation is a lie. Um, let's be clear about that. And that's, that's probably a discussion for later in the show or for another time. But 
let's start off with the basics. Um, the super age, is, as I define it, is, is defined by, by bodies like the UN Development Program, is, is when a society reaches one out of five people over the age of 65. Mm-hmm. And this is a first for humanity. And the United States, along with 34 other economies, will be part of this notorious club of sorts by the end of this decade. And these are mostly high-income countries that are joining this club. But there are also some places that you wouldn't expect, like Cuba. Hmm. I mean, places that you just wouldn't register as being, quote-unquote, older society. Um, Loneliness is a pervasive and prevailing issue that is just burning through society right now. And it does seem to affect older people at a higher rate than younger people. But younger people are not immune to this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a bit of a crisis here. It's such a significant um, uh, event that there are even governments, the United Kingdom government actually appointed a number of years ago, a minister for loneliness. That's mm-hmm. what kind of crisis level we're at. And, you know, we kick around this statistic all the time, but it might be new for some of your listeners Loneliness, which leads to isolation, is just like smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. It has such negative health consequences. But more than that, you know, it's a real drag on the overall health of a nation, the overall health of a society, because when you are lonely, you get sick. When you are sick, you cannot work. When you Mm -hmm. cannot work, you cannot feed yourself. And loneliness can actually contribute to higher rates of of illness, physical illness, but also mental illness. And I'm not just talking about the loony bin here. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about people who who suffer from dementia. You can slide into dementia simply because of being lonely. Mm. Uh, My wife and I helped create an improv for caregivers program some time ago. uh, And that's when we first became aware of uh, words like the gray tsunami and mm-hmm. the ca- the caregiving crisis. And we just had this conversation uh, this morning about when you we're looking at Second City right now, as many businesses are about like what are we today? Like what's our bigger purpose and bigger meaning? And I think both through the use of comedy, people laughing together, as well as our use of improvisation to have people collaborate together, we're about creating connection. And I'm like, that's a high value kind of business to be in if, if you look at that for, for, for the future. And everything you're saying uh, right now, we have a, a program called um, Humor Doesn't Retire. And it's, and, and it's these seniors who just, they're, I mean, they're the biggest pains in the ass to deal with. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> But they're but they're awesome, and they love what they do, and their families could not be happier in terms of the way they get sort of drawn out. But I like to think it's also drawing back into that thing that was essential in them at one point. Uh, and it's just that they 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 don't have the same. They're retired. They're not going into workplaces. They I think there was an article in today's paper about uh, people not making new friendships when they get yeah. older, which I think is a real shame. It's it's especially hard for men too to make yeah. friendships later in life. You know, men ascribe so much of their worth to the workplace mm-hmm. that when they leave it, whether they're made redundant or they retire, you know, they're losing a third of themselves. Um, they're losing a third of their time and making up for that time is, 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 is not an easy thing to do. And I've seen many a man who has left the workforce by force or by choice um, really look adrift 
they, they've lost the sense of who they are and their friendships in many cases were tied to work too. So they, they, they in many ways have to, to restart and we don't, we don't prepare men or women for this change. You know, mm-hmm. we spend all, all of our energies preparing children to be adults and to function in society. But once you're there, we say, okay, good luck. Enjoy the next 50 <laughs> to 80 years. And, and, we, and we walk away. And, and, and by the way, the training before that's not that great either. <laughs> it's not wonderful. Um, but we, we have a system set up that doesn't, has not really taken into account the fact that our demographics, our ability to live long lives has fundamentally changed. Mm-hmm. Our education system, you know, the better parts of it are still based off a medieval model. Yep. And, we're, and we're okay with that. Yeah, we, shouldn't um, be. we shouldn't be, you know, change happens. And, and the education system is something that I think really needs to change in this new era of humanity. Um, it has to be adapted to one that looks at a longer life and the fact that we will have to invariably have um, multiple careers. Yeah. And this is where technology becomes our friend. I, I've been in some fascinating conversations over the last few weeks around AI technology mm-hmm. and adult learning and, yeah. and how that's the, the ability to, to you know, pick up on, on all different kinds of wisdom and have it tailored for you. So I'm very hopeful that, that there's going to be, and a lot of times those changes are going to be driven by the commercial sector when they realize that they, there's a need <laughs> to blow up higher education. Well, the, the, you know, the irony is, is that uh, in, in talking about the, the future workforce with our clients, because of course, there's, I have a day job past the book, yeah. um, we talk often about the fact that they're going to have to augment their workforce with, with automation and AI. And there's kind of this initial bristling to that. Yeah. Um, I think because we beat, beat up on machine learning so much as a jobs killer, yep. um, but we need to look at machine learning and, and AI and automation as, as, as a jobs enhancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we don't do that, you know, we won't continue to make efficiencies within our economy. And with declining birth rates and declining populations, the only way we continue to grow as an economy is through efficiencies. Right. It's, it's very simple economics when you think about it. Yeah. And get rid of the rote jobs and have jobs that have more uh, human meaning. Uh, I mean, there's there's so much that computers can't do. They're not good storytellers. They're not good improvisers. They're not funny. They're, they mm-hmm. can't build relationships. There's lots of stuff. And that's all that messy stuff that humans uh, have a, a great capacity for. Uh, we were chatting before we started, and I'd like to go there and talk a bit about what has the experience of COVID um, shown the world with regard to this topic and the future that awaits us? In terms of aging populations or in terms of all yeah, of us? It, it, like a, a society's response, society's oh. response. <laughs> Terrible. Okay. Um, I mean, I think we started off COVID on the wrong foot. Yep. Um, we certainly didn't get the data uh, that we needed out of China at the early days. And, mm-hmm. and because of that, I think it set us on the wrong path because the next kind of the next mass place of infection was Italy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, scientists do their best to read the data that they have in front of them. And what they saw in Italy was a mass death event amongst older populations. And that's how they, that's how they relate it to, to us when the outbreak happened here. And I can tell you watching the early days of the pandemic, of course, I'm, I'm a data guy. So I like, I watch the data all the time mm-hmm. and I'm seeing this and I'm like, it's not about your age. It's not about your age. 
Right. And I'm seeing everyone say, if you're 65 years and older, you're going to get the disease and die. It's right. not about your age. It's not about your age. It was like banging my head against a wall mm-hmm. because what I saw was young men and women in particular not take it seriously. And they were essentially vectors passing the disease around society at a very active rate. It had very little to do, although it is a tragedy um, that older populations died. There's a greater greater causation, um, not between age and death, but in terms of um, the number of health deficiencies that you have, whether or not you're diabetic or have heart disease. Um, So it was a complete complete misread from from the beginning. It also suggested, I think because of the cavalier approach that we took early on as a nation, that, well, older people are just something we can dispose of. And I don't know about you, but that made me feel sick to my yes. stomach. Yes. Um, one, of the, one of the areas, I think, where the, the brightest light was shined upon was in our care system. And what few people realize is that, you know, people who work in nursing care in particular are not making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, they are making, many of them make what you'd make in a fast food restaurant. Mm-hmm. And many of them are working multiple jobs. And in COVID's case, in the nursing care sector and the in the in the long-term care sector, a number of them are working between different facilities. So what happened would be, you know, person X, who's a young person, goes out and has a nice night out on the town, um, captures the disease, carries the disease, takes it into nursing home one, then nursing home two, then nursing home three, and creates three pretty significant outbreaks. And when you look at the death rates, you know, the the highest percentage is definitely people over the age of 85, Mm -hmm. um, in large part, because, you know, they're, they're, many of them are nearing the end of their life, they do have multiple chronic conditions. And um, they were in, you know, they were sitting in places living in places, they were essentially petri dishes. Um, that couldn't keep disease out. I thought it was interesting because you talk about the Spanish uh, flu mm-hmm. and there was a 1918 rules for influenza poem that came down to basically wash your hands, wear a mask. Yeah. And avoid <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's funny. I, 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 just before we got on, I, I had a coffee with a, with a colleague and, and they said, you know, demographic futurist, futurist is just hooey. And mm-hmm. I said, yeah, but not demographic futurism because Demographic futurism relies on a lot of data mm-hmm. and looking at past behaviors to predict future behaviors. And when COVID broke out, the first thing I did was say, okay, what's the last event that I can most closely align this to? Well, it can't be HIV AIDS because no one gave two you know what's about HIV AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's still a pandemic today. Um, I've got to look back further. I've got to look at 1918. And what I found was just shocking and it continues to blow my mind today. We have followed culturally the same path as 1918 Hmm. difference was in 1918 that young people died at a higher rate than older people. So I think there was a greater attention to it. Mm -hmm. Um, The flu was far more severe at that point. We didn't have the same protocols in place. Um, But the areas of the country that, you know, behaved as no nothings back then, are doing the same behaviors today, almost down to the city. Um, And that to me is nothing short of extraordinary that we are able to make these mistakes over and over again and not learn from them. And 
I think it's important to be critical of, of our public officials because it's a way in which we can, can learn. But I still think when the first, when the first cases were showing up in Wuhan that we knew about, I made a phone call to my own mother and I said, I want you to do something. I traveled throughout Asia quite a bit in my, in my previous work and, and still, still did today until the, the, till the outbreak. And I called my mother and I said, I need you to do two things for me. Just, 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 just don't ask. Don't, don't just do. And she said, what's that? I said, I need you to get a mask for you and dad. Um, doesn't matter what it is. Something to cover your face. And I said, I want you to get food for like a couple weeks. You know, nothing serious. Just go out and do it. And she laughed at me. My mother laughed at me and she said, I would rather be caught dead than wear a mask on the street. And I said, yeah, well, that might be one of your options. Right. Um, And she talks about the story quite often today, but we had these practices in place that suggested these were good things to do. And our own public health officials, quite frankly, let us down. Um, Dr. Fauci, who we raise up on a a pillar today as the beacon of wisdom, early on didn't suggest mask wearing was, was something that we needed to do. Right. And, you know, as much as I admire that man, I think that was reckless. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think it put a lot of people in harm's way and allowed the disease to really flourish here um, more so than in other places around the world. So one of the interesting things you go into is uh, different factors that are going on that we need to consider uh, beyond um, simply youth and, and, and aging. And one of those is the urban rural divide. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the amazing uh, uh, stories you tell is around this town of Nagaro in Japan, mm-hmm. if I'm saying that right, which mm-hmm. is called the Valley of the Dolls. Can you, yeah. can you say what, how it got that name? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, there's a chapter in the book called Canaries in the Coal Mine. And it's a bit of an homage to my grandfather, but it's also a suggestion of what can happen and, you know, and who, who, who and where we need to watch as, as bellwethers of our future. And the rural populations in the United States, but also around the world are just taking a hammering right now. Um, they've been hit by every megatrend possible from automation to digitization, to urbanization, to population aging and depopulation now in some cases. And this town of uh, Naguro, I think is the proper mm-hmm. pronunciation, but you got uh, good, very close. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the Valley of the Dolls because their population has basically vanished over time. People have moved into the cities. And their average age now, I think, is well into the 60s. The youngest person, I think, now is, is around 60, uh, if my math is correct. Um, but in order to kind of make the town feel more homey um, and more comfortable, they've put these scarecrows up of people throughout town, the people that used to live there. And they're these large kind of oversized cabbage patch doll-like looking creatures mm-hmm. that sit in the schools and the classroom at desks are out in the fields doing work. Um, it's dystopic. Yes. And, you know, when you see the images of this place, when you hear the stories of it, you can't help think to yourself, wow, if some alien culture comes here sometime in the future and says, what happened here? It's going to be hard to piece together because it's so strange. Mm. Um, but I think it underlies to me at least, the trauma that um, rural populations have been enduring for some period of time. 
farming and the rural life has been fundamentally altering for decades now. And those of us in the big cities and on the coast, we, you know, we, we really spit on country folk. We, we don't take them seriously. Um, We don't listen to their needs. We don't help them in their lives in a way that I think they, they understand or, or, and we don't want to understand them. We often lob um, insults at them being hayseeds and racists. And the reality is for most of these folks, they've seen their entire life evaporate before them. Mm -hmm. You know, their kids have left. um, They can't see their grandkids. They're living in poverty. They can't get to a doctor anymore. Um, Buying groceries is difficult. Um, In some cases, you know, the banks have closed, you know, getting access to money is difficult. I mean, nothing works. And I had a number of people read for me throughout throughout this process. And, and one is a woman in, in Oklahoma, her name's Sheila Hooten Forney, and she runs a family farm outside of Oklahoma City. And and Sheila said, I, I really appreciate that you've seen us. Nobody mm-hmm. sees us. And then you're like writing a book that 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 hits you in a way that, you know, is I don't know, it makes me kind of emotional because these people have been ignored for such a long period of time. And if we're going to turn things around, we have to look at the rural communities to say, what have we done wrong, which is virtually everything, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And how can we take these learnings and apply them to the suburbs, to the cities? Because demographic change is coming here too. We're not going to avoid it. No one can avoid this. Um, it's on the scale of the environmental change that we're encountering today, if not greater, uh, because we've all experienced demographic change already. We just don't necessarily know it. Hmm. Uh, uh, the idea of being seen, w- one of the things I, I was visiting a dear friend of mine in um, Denver, and his two teenage sons would constantly refer to him as OK Boomer. <laughs> and it was, it was like this, and it, and it was no. funny at first. Like I, I was kind of enjoying it, and at a certain point, I was like, you know, the, like, and I'm not, a, I'm Gen X, but very close. Um, but it's still like we've got, we dismiss uh, or we joke, um, and we forget that sometimes those jokes actually demean and don't see the value of people who are who have a ton of uh, um, uh, a ton to contribute uh, to society. Yeah, we right here. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I I was really lucky in in writing this book and having Harper Collins as my publisher because the team that backed me mm-hmm. was an age diverse team. Oh, good. And I and I think the reason Harper really wanted the book is because their millennial uh, editors said you've got to take this on. Hmm. And the woman that I worked most closely with, uh, a younger member of the team, her name's Rebecca Raskin. Rebecca and I got into, we didn't fight much about the book or, or the copy or, or the direction, but we went, we got into a pretty heated debate about OK Boomer. And the reality is, is that different generations, different ages see the insult of OK Boomer differently. Yeah. So if you're older, you, you, hear, you kind of feel it in your gut, like, ugh. Mm-hmm. Like, why are they picking up my age? Um, younger people don't see it that way. They don't see it as an age insult per se. They see, okay, boomer is you're just out of touch. So whereas boomers and, and boomer adjacents <laughs> tend to think of it as an age-based insult, it's it, younger people, I would say late millennials, early, early Zs, 
um, they look at it as you're just out of touch. You're, you're handing us a world that's just not the world we want. There's, you know, increasing inequalities, mm-hmm. you know, constant strife, um, socio-political, um, the environment seems to be falling apart around us. Um, we can barely afford to make it ahead. Um, you've handed us a raw deal and we're going to call you out on it. Um, Don't, wouldn't you say that this is one of those situations where both things are true? Oh, totally. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And that's, and that's, and that's where we landed. And I'm sure you yeah, saw in the yeah. narrative is that it, it became, I think because Rebecca and I were able, and I'm a Gen X, I'm a late Gen X. I'm a mm-hmm. 1977. Um, Rebecca and I were able to have this frank conversation about what this actually means. But too often, you know, if you're a boomer or boomer adjacent, you internalize this as something very age focused. And if you're a, uh, maybe a millennial or a Gen, Gen Z, you say, it's not age based at all. You just mm-hmm. don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so it is a little bit of both. And I wanted to express that because when we go into the future, this demographic future called the super age, we have to understand each other better. We have to open up lines of communication in a better way. We have to realize that it's okay that we screwed up um, as long as we're willing to fix it. And one of the areas that I think, Kelly, that really illustrated the interest in boomers in particular and late millennials and, and Gen Z was around Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And there was some really interesting data that came out about, you know, mobile phone tracking, which none of mm-hmm. us like to talk about. But when they were tracking these events, kind of the cell signals and the owners of the cell phones at these events, it showed that the two groups that really showed up in mass were young people and older people. Mm. The people that didn't show up were people like me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> kind of this uh, later Gen X, early millennials did not show up. The 35s mm-hmm. to 45s were not there. Mm-hmm. It was young people, sub 35, sub 30, and older people, you know, plus, plus 60, plus 65. So I think that says a lot about our potential for the future if we're willing to stop lobbying insults and start focusing on proactive, actionable solutions. Yeah, working together. Um, all right. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you for your yes and story. But before we do that, um, in, in the, uh, one of the chapters, which is called A Novel Reality Emerges, you talk about this middle plus and the idea of stretching out the healthy active years in, in mm-hmm. the middle. And I think that's an important message inside that, that it's not just about like retirement, happy retirement. And that's a story that's fake. Um, but but talk, talk to us about this, this better idea that you have. Well, I think one of the things that's always caught me off guard is this idea that people have that they've thrown around. It's a false premise that just because we're extending life, we're somehow tacking years on to the end. Like, you know, here's another one. Here's another one. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> enjoy your soup. soup. Enjoy your soup. Okay, here's another one. You know, can, Father, can I please have some more? You know, like, it, uh-huh. you just don't tack it on to the end. What actually happens when we're extending healthy years is that years of life get kind of forced into the middle. So what we're enjoying me and you, Kelly, at least, mm-hmm. is we're enjoying an extended middle life. And that is something to really celebrate. And, I, you know, case in point, you know, last, last spring, I was having coffee with, a, with an old colleague of mine from AARP. And 
he's a 50 something. And he was talking about going to see a concert up at the Fillmore, which is just outside of the city. And I said, can you imagine your parents ever going to see a rock concert at the Fillmore? He goes, no, and isn't it great? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that that's part of this new reality. Now, people who are this middle plus, sometimes they're referred to as super agers. Sometimes they're referred to as modern elders. Um, we haven't landed on a term yet for them um, collectively. Mm-hmm. So that, that ball is still in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting about them is that they are mostly active economically, um, meaning that they've continued work full-time or part-time, um, or they have an active income that might be from assets in the stock market, they're engaged and they have purpose or they're actively seeking purpose. They're also really intentional about their health, you know, whether it's preventative care or physical fitness. Um, the wearables market for them is through the roof. Right. Um, and I think probably the most interesting thing, and, and, and my friend Carrie Hannon, who's an author as well on the subject of, of older workers in particular, is that they're curious. Mm. They're really curious. Like there's an interest, there's an interest, an active interest in growth and staying connected. They're not willing to go quietly into the night as maybe the silent generation did or the greatest generation did that said, you know, it's their turn now. Um, this generation, this new emerging group class of people is saying, screw you. I'm at my best right now. I've got more money. I am as healthy as I've ever been. I am culturally aware and connected. Uh, I am an active consumer. And if you tell me other, any other way, I'll buy something from somebody else who, who wants me. Mm. Um, there is a great power to this group of people, but they're just starting to emerge. They do tend to be higher income. Um, I think the lower income folks are still missing this, but it will eventually get there for them. This, this always happens is that the democratization of a life stage happens in time. Mm-hmm. And, and case in point, you know, we were talking about teenagers in the late 1890s. We were talking about them then. There's, there's, there's recorded historical data about this discussion of this new stage of life called the teenage years, adolescence. But it really wasn't until the 1940s and 1950s that it became a thing and it became yeah. a market. Yeah. So what we're just talking about super agers, middle plus, modern elders, whatever you want to call this group of people, we're at the very early stages of it. you know. And in maybe five or maybe 10 years, we're going to be talking about this group of people like they've always been around. Right, right. They're part of us. They're part of us. And I think above all what these folks, if there's one trait that these folks exhibit, bar none, is they are not leaving the pack. They are going to be in the pack or they're going to be ahead of the pack. They will not fall behind. And they will use any technology. They will use any type of advantage they can take to stay in that pack. Because falling behind means falling out and eventual death. Yeah, I mean, you're you are speaking to one of them, and, and my yeah. wife, both of us, we're we're both in our mid mid fifties. Um, we're both very at, at probably more uh, diverse in our careers than we've ever have been. She's finishing up a book. We're about to start another one. I mean, it's like this. I I feel more poised. I mean, this is a, the thing: as you get older, you you realize. I I think if you have a, an ounce of wisdom, you realize how little you know. 
and how little any anyone knows. Uh, and, the, and then that opens up the world to you because you, you, you realize, oh, we all have this disadvantage. No one's a real expert on, on everything. They act like they are. So right. if, you, if you walk into the room with a not knowing, you're going to have a chance to learn something. And I see many young people walk into a room thinking they know everything. And I'm sure I was one of those young people. Oh, we all were. We yeah. all were. We, 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 we taught we taught kids that they're the smartest thing ever to come out of, out of, out of a body. Um, mm. But they're not. And, and I, and, and there is something um, about growing older, living longer that creates, I think a degree of humility that is invaluable. And to me, you know, my curiosity has only been enhanced the longer I've been around. I am, actively engaged in building a friend group and maintaining a friend group of different ages and stages in life. Because to me, it makes me more interesting. I learn more from them. Mm -hmm. Um, If I only kept company with people who were, you know, 40 to 50, I'd be a bore. (laughs) I'd be an absolute bore. Um, So there is something about maintaining friendships, again, guarding against that isolation piece that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. I just think it makes you a better person yeah. and a more interesting person. And I think that, you know, I have the luxury of doing that. Not everyone does. Uh, I'm very, very well aware of that privilege, but um, God, embrace it when you can. It makes you, it makes you cooler. <laughs> so that's a perfect transition into a yes and story. Do you have one mm-hmm. for us? Oh yeah, I mean, there's 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 so many, but in in considering this, I I traveled quite a bit for work, as I mentioned to you before, and and I would go into Asia a lot and to examine what was happening in those super rich countries. And a friend says, "Come visit us in Bangkok. They were stationed there at the U.S. Embassy, and it was just a short three hour flight from from Singapore, if I if memory serves. Now, normally I would say no. I'm here for work. Go on. I said yes, I'll come. And I did. And of course, they're a bit bohemian. And along the way, everything changed. So I got to the airport. I'm flying a budget carrier. Uh, it's called the Pineapple Express. Great. No <laughs> joke. Um, they say, as I'm getting ready to take off, we've already left for the beach. When you get here, just hop in a taxi. So I had to take a taxi two hours to get to the beach. Oh. This is very well outside of my comfort zone. And as we're approaching the, the, the taxi driver, Uber driver, rather, uh, who speaks very broken English says, you know, the dock is closed. Mm. And my friends say, don't worry, there's a boat coming for you. And I walk out to the end of this pier in the dead of night, something very much outside of my comfort zone. Yeah. And I said, there's no boat here. And they're like, no, we're calling him now. And in the darkness, they and this boat comes from the darkness to pick me up. I was quite sure I was being sold into white slavery at that point. <laughs> but I made it and I had uh, the time of my life. Um, wow. So I think if there's a moral to the story is when you have a chance to do a yes and take it. I love it. The book is called The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic Destiny. Brad Sherman, thank you for coming on the show. Kelly, I really loved it. Thank you. Getting to Yes And is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. Our producer and editor is Ashley Byhun, and we are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of each podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more or working with The Second City, go to www.secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Walk inside.
Recevoir 